Listener note, this podcast was created as an adjunct for those studying for the PCS exam. By no means do we guarantee that one will pass the exam solely by listening to this podcast. We encourage all those studying for the exam to put the appropriate time and effort into their studying using resources recommended by the ABPTS and the APTA. It is not allowed to discuss test content and we will not accept any questions related to test content. While we will do our best to provide the most accurate information, if you feel as though we have stated something that is incorrect, please contact us via Instagram at Pushing Pediatrics. Hi, I'm Sheila. And I'm Sarah. And welcome to Pushing Pediatrics, an educational podcast for physical therapists created to help those studying for the Pediatric Certified Specialist exam and anyone else interested in learning more about pediatric physical therapy. All right, welcome back. We know some people are going to be listening to these episodes for years to come, but we're just coming back off of our Christmas break. And we have a big doozy of an episode for you. We're knocking on the door of a new year. And so people testing this year are looking at about two months to go before it's really going to be time for people to start taking the tests. So you really got to start hunkering down and probably devoting a little bit more time to studying if you haven't been already um, and just push hard these next couple of weeks so you can get ready for the test. All right, so this week, stick with us during this episode, we're going over two very long and detailed topics. We're going to tackle pediatric spinal cord first, and then we're going to talk about spina bifida second. The unique aspects of growth and development can make treatment of the child with spinal cord injury a challenge for pediatric therapists. And the rehabilitation process may take years because the young child requires time to achieve adequate strength, adult body proportions, developmental milestones, and cognitive skills for maximal independence. So the book goes through a bunch of pages describing causes of pediatric spinal cord injury. I'm going to leave you to read that yourself because this chapter is already going to be very long and I'm not sure that's the best place to spend our time. The book talks a lot about advances in recovery, which is so fascinating. The current focus is in neuroprotection, neuroplasticity, neuroregeneration, cellular transplant therapy. Additionally, pharmacological interventions can help halt the chain of secondary events, producing some of that neural damage and to protect some of the viable cells. Hypothermia can also be used and involves lowering the body temperature to 92 degrees for a period of time and then slowly rewarming. It potentially minimizes metabolic demands and edema within an injured spinal cord. Physiologically, in children younger than 10, the cervical spine has greater mobility than it does in adults because of ligamentous laxity, shallow angulation of the facets, incomplete ossification of vertebrae, and relative underdevelopment of the neck muscles for the size of the head. This puts the upper cervical spine at risk more than adults, and spinal cord injury may occur without signs of bony damage by radiography. Let's move on to discussing the zone of injury. The level of injury may appear to move towards the head as the secondary or indirect injury processes set in. 
later, the level of injury may move more caudally as these factors resolve, as sprouting develops, as hypertrophy of weak muscles occurs. The extent of injury may diminish for as long as one year. Moving on to incomplete syndromes that have distinct clinical representations, this is going to bring you straight back to school. Know the components of these well and make sure you're confident with the distinguishing features. So first we have anterior cord. This is caused by damage of the anterior spinal artery causing infarction to the spinal cord. It produces variable motor paralysis, reduced sensation of pain and temperature, preserved dorsal column function of sensory and touch, and it has a poor prognosis for the return of function. Central cord syndrome causes flaccid weakness of the arms, strong but spastic legs, and preserved bowel and bladder function. With this, ambulation is possible, but hand function may be impaired. Posterior cord lesions are rare and result in selective loss of proprioception with preserved motor function. Ambulation remains unlikely because the loss of proprioception. Brown-Saccard causes ipsilateral paralysis and ipsilateral proprioceptive loss and contralateral loss of pain and temperature sensation. This is primarily seen with penetrating trauma to one side of the spinal cord and prognosis for ambulation is good. Cauda equina syndrome is an injury to the lumbosacral nerve roots. You will see lower extremity weakness and areflexia of the legs and bladder. It is essentially a lesion of the peripheral nerve or lower motor neuron and may show recovery over years. Just a quick tidbit that helps me to remember the central cord syndrome is because they have flaccid weakness of the arms and then strong but spastic legs. One of my professors in PT school told us to think about a man in a barrel. So his whole body is in a barrel except for his legs. Following a spinal cord injury, the obvious first important task is emergent stabilization in the field to prevent any further damage to the intact but injured spinal cord. Next, a thorough neurological exam is performed to determine motor and sensory levels of the injury and to determine the completeness of the injury. Initially, spinal shock is usually present, meaning the muscles are flaccid below the level of the injury and all cutaneous and deep tendon reflexes are absent. This state can persist for hours to weeks and is said to be over when sacral reflexes are present. A patient will likely have a surgical stabilization to prevent later deformity, pain, or loss of neurological function. This may not be necessary if spinal alignment can be achieved with traction or maintained with an orthosis. Obviously, there may be additional injuries depending on the mechanism. You may need to consider other things like a TBI or a brachial plexus injury. It is important to know the medical complications, the long-term medical management, and how to prevent secondary impairments related to spinal cord injury. Autonomic dysreflexia is a big one to remember. This is a massive reflexive sympathetic discharge that occurs after a spinal cord injury of T6 or above in response to a noxious stimulus below the level of the injury. It causes a sudden increase in blood pressure, more than 15 millimeters of mercury above baseline. If left untreated, it can cause stroke, seizures, or even death. 
Symptoms in older children are similar to adults, and they include headache, flushing, sweating, pilomotor activity, bradycardia or tachycardia, and hypertension. Symptoms in infants and toddlers will be different. You might see sleepy, irritability, or crying. You need to have a knowledge of baseline blood pressure so you can recognize an abnormal increase. Usually autonomic dysreflexia is caused by things like an overdistended bladder and need for a catheterization, a kicked catheter, an overdistended bowel, excessive skin pressure below the level of the injury, or something even like a wrinkle in the clothing or having compression hose that are too tight. Treatment for autonomic dysreflexia includes monitoring blood pressure, pulse, and temperature, elevating the head, removal of compression stockings, abdominal binders, anything that might be tight, loosen the clothing, deal with any bladder and bowel issues, and they may even need pharmacological intervention by a physician. Another component of spinal cord injury to be managed is respiratory dysfunction. This ranges from complete diaphragm paralysis that requires mechanical ventilation, so your C1 to your C3, or it might just be diminished vital capacity or weakened forced expiration during coughing as a result of weakened accessory breathing muscles in the lower cervical and thoracic level injuries. You will need to incorporate respiratory exercises, including things like quad coughing, which is a forced compression of the abdomen with a hand in an inward and upward fashion during expiration. Spinal cord injury patients need to be monitored for deep vein thrombosis due to paralyzed independent lower extremities. This is less common in children, but increased frequency is seen after the age of 14. Conditions unique to children with spinal cord injury include immobilization hypercalcemia. This occurs about 12 to 18 months after an injury and involves approximately 40% of bone mineral density being lost via calcium that's excreted in the urine. This is because children are more likely to have rapid bone turnover, resulting in a larger load of calcium than the kidneys can excrete. It produces elevated serum calcium levels and symptoms include lethargy, nausea, altered mood, and anorexia. Treatment involves hydration for improved excretion, administration of medications to avoid excessive calcification in unwanted areas like the joints, causing heterotopic ossification, or in the kidneys causing stones. Pathological fractures are also a concern when bone mineral densities are below 40% of normal. Going back to heterotopic ossification, this can be asymptomatic or it may interfere with range of motion and cause pain. Hips, knees, shoulders, and elbows are the most common areas affected. Orthostatic hypotension is a position-related drop in blood pressure due to a decrease in venous return of blood from the lower extremities. Decrease in venous return decreases cardiac output and arterial pressures and drops blood pressure as it usually happens during positional changes, such as a supine to sit or a sit to stand or coming up out of a wheelchair tilt. Treatment includes compression stockings, abdominal binders, reclining back the wheelchair, a tilt table, and pharmacological intervention. Early PT goals may focus on maintaining a stable blood pressure when transitioning out of bed or in the wheelchair. 
Again, blood pressure monitoring throughout the sessions is vital. And this is where knowing normal blood pressures is going to be helpful for the test. You can imagine a case question that could relate back to blood pressure and requires you to determine what is normal or what may be something like autonomic dysreflexia or orthostatic hypotension. Spinal cord injury may also result in thermal regulatory dysfunction due to the loss of hypothalamic thermal regulatory control and interruption of the afferent pathways from peripheral temperature receptors below the level of the injury. With T6 and above, you're going to see complete loss of shivering and sweating and no peripheral circulatory adjustment below the level of the injury. Children with spinal cord injury should avoid excessive sun exposure and maintain hydration. Syringomyelia is a delayed cavitation within the damaged spinal cord and can occur in patients with complete or incomplete lesions. Signs and symptoms include loss of motor function, ascending sensory level, increased spasticity or sweating, or a new onset of pain or dysesthesia. We also need to look at both spasticity and pain. Spasticity is pretty common and usually evolves over one to two years. Initially, though, you will see flaccid extremities in the first three to six months, and this can evolve into hyperreflexia, clonus, and flexor spasms. And then later, you're going to find that extensor spasms are usually the predominating feature. This can be controlled pharmacologically and with therapeutic interventions like passive range of motion, passive and functional e-stim, functional electrical stimulation, assisted cycling, and static standing. A treatment thought of note, many patients feel a certain amount of spasticity is actually helpful during transfers, bed mobility, and ADLs. So pharmacological treatments are usually withheld unless the spasticity is severe enough to limit function. Pain with spinal cord injury is a neurogenic, neuropathic type pain, often described as a burning pain and can sometimes precede the return of function or sensation. This type of pain is usually controlled with gabapentin. Skin breakdown and pressure ulcers are very important to consider in the spinal cord injury population. They result from improper positioning, both in bed and wheelchairs, or inadequate pressure relief activities. They can also come from improper fit of orthosis or from friction, shear, and moisture, secondary to improper bladder management, diaper wear, and transfers, specifically when they use the slide board. Young children also often have complete disregard for any body area that is insensate. Pressure relief techniques are imperative. In the hospital, they need to be turned every two hours. In power mobility, they need to be using tilt and recline. If they have a manual chair, they need to be taught wheelchair push-ups or lateral leans and anterior leans. These are recommended every 15 to 30 minutes for at least one minute. This is a good time to pause and take a minute to talk about pressure ulcer staging. So there are four stages in pressure ulcer staging. In stage one, sores are not open wounds. The skin may be painful, but it has no breaks or tears. The skin appears reddened and does not blanch, meaning it does not lose color briefly when you press your finger on it and then remove your finger. In a darkened skin person, the area may appear to be a different color than the surrounding skin, but it may not look red. Skin temperature will often feel a little bit warmer. 
at stage two, the skin breaks open, wears away, or forms an ulcer, which is usually tender and painful. The sore expands into deeper layers of the skin. It can look like a scrape or an abrasion, a blister, or a small shallow crater in the skin. Sometimes this stage looks like a blister filled with clear fluid. At this stage, some skin may be damaged but on repair or may die. During stage three, the sore gets worse and extends into the tissue below the skin, forming a small crater. Fat may show in the sore, but not muscle, tendon, or bone. At stage four, the pressure injury is deep, reaching into that muscle and bone and causing extensive damage. Damage to deeper tissues, tendons, and joints may occur. In stages three and four, there may be little or no pain due to significant damage. Serious complications such as infection of the bone or blood can occur if pressure injuries progress. There are a lot of components to orthopedic management in a child with a spinal cord injury. We need to manage contractures and prevent hip subluxation and dislocation by stretching hip adductor and flexors, using proper bed positioning in an abducted position and wheelchair seating that encourages proper femoral alignment with a medial thigh buildup or pommel. Prevention of pathological fractures is important and we need to educate patients on attention to their lower extremities. Neuromuscular scoliosis occurs in virtually all children with spinal cord injury, particularly if they're injured before their adolescent growth spurt. This can affect comfort of seating and respiratory function. And more than half of children will eventually progress to the point of needing a spinal fusion. Proper positioning is important, but it doesn't appear to ultimately prevent the development of scoliosis. Prophylactic bracing is controversial because the wear of a TLSO will most likely inhibit some of their independent activities, mobility, and reachable workspace. But wearing the TLSO can also prevent or delay spinal fusion needs. So that's a situation where you're really going to have to look at what is in the best interest of the child. When we're doing an exam on an individual with a spinal cord injury, we need to know the ASIA examination well. This is going to help us define right and left motor levels, right and left sensory levels, neurologic level, severity of the injury, meaning is it complete or is it incomplete, and a classification called the Asia Impairment Scale or the AIS. Let's talk about defining the level of spinal cord injury. Asia Standards accepts the widely used system of muscle grading. This is very similar to the manual muscle test that we use. This is all covered in the book. Make sure you know the key muscles for motor level classification. This is a strict memorization table and you need to know it. It is table 21.2 in the Campbell 5th edition. So let's just run through them very quickly. So C5 is elbow flexors. C6 is wrist extensors. C7 is elbow extensors. C8 is finger flexors to the middle finger. T1 is small finger abductors. L2 is hip flexors. L3 is knee extensors. L4 is ankle dorsiflexors. L5 is long toe extensors. And S1 is ankle plantar flexors. I just cannot tell you how much you need to know this. 
one suggestion could be to like think of a movement with your arm or your leg to help you remember this that you could do easily if you get a question on it in the test. Mine for the upper extremity is pretending like I'm shooting a basketball and then giving a thumbs up and then a high five at the end of it because that goes through all the motions for the Perfect. upper extremity. I like that. Asia defined motor level is the most caudal root level in which muscle strength is a grade three or higher. And the next most rostral muscle is a grade five. Make sure to look over the Asia examination on page 510 of the Campbell fifth edition. The score can be used to predict function and the need for assistance. The sensory level may not correspond exactly to the motor level. It is super helpful to determine the sensory level in injuries above C5 or in the thoracic cord because there are no key muscles to help us determine this. You will need dermatome charts to do this. Proprioception should be assessed below the level of injury in patients with incomplete spinal cord injuries to determine the integrity of the dorsal column. Let's quickly review classification of the spinal cord injury. So an Asia impairment scale, the AISA, is a complete injury, meaning total absence of motor or sensory function in the lowest sacral segments, though there may be some preservation of sensation or motor levels below the level of the injury. That's that zone of partial preservation. With A, S, I, B, C, and D, these are all going to be your incomplete injuries. And the letter is determined by what motor or sensory function is present in the lowest sacral segment. There may be voluntary control of the external anal sphincter and sensation at the mucocutaneous junction. Further delineation between incomplete classifications occurs based on the extent of preservation of sensory and motor function below the level of the injury. You have to know how to determine the level of an injury and if it's complete or not. Specifically for pediatrics, the Asia examination is the clinical tool for assessing pediatric patients with spinal cord injury and for assessing prognosis and outcomes. Research does show poor utility under four years of age due to being unable to complete the exam and some poor cooperation with children under 10. I think that's obvious. There are a lot of tests for activity and participation related to spinal cord injury that you need to know. If you have worked in the hospital setting, I'm sure you're very familiar with both the FIM, the Functional Independence Measure, and the WEFIM, the Functional Independence Measure for Children. These are often measures used in acute rehabilitation. Other useful activity and participation tests may include the PD, the Pediatric Evaluation of Disability, the PEDS-QL, which is the PEDS Quality of Life, the Canadian Occupational Performance Measure, the Spinal Cord Independence Measure 3, which is currently used in adults and being tested for use in children. Moving on to physical therapy intervention, acute rehabilitation and long-term treatment of children with spinal cord injury requires a comprehensive approach involving both hospital and school-based personnel. It will be important to develop age-appropriate range of motion, strengthening, and spinal cord education programs. 
you will address functional mobility, bed mobility, transfers, sitting, balance, ambulation, and basic and advanced wheelchair skills. Interventions may differ in each setting based on the age, abilities, and needs of the child. In the acute care setting, the focus will be on education, prevention of secondary complications, and discharge planning. With inpatient rehab, the focus will be on trialing and choosing appropriate equipment, functional activities such as engaging in developmentally appropriate and continued education. With outpatient rehab, the focus will be on learning new skills or advancing skills as they become developmentally appropriate. So there's another important table on the page 513 of Campbell. This is the outcomes table. You need to know the mobility expectations at each level. So for example, you can expect at C1 through C4 that they're going to be dependent for bed mobility that they're going to be dependent for transfers and they may need a mechanical lift. They can have the potential to be independent with a wheelchair, depending on if they can get a power wheelchair with a head, chin, mouth, or tongue control. For pressure relief in bed, they're going to be dependent. For pressure relief in a wheelchair, they have the ability to be independent using a power tilt wheelchair. So each level, it goes through that in the book. There's levels for C5, C6, and then C7 through T1. And then moving on to the lower spinal cord injuries, they talk about the potential for ambulation, driving, and use of a manual wheelchair. So I really think it's important that you need to put each of these onto a flashcard or something and make sure you really understand at each level what is expected of someone with that level of spinal cord injury. Some things to think about for those with a T1 injury and below ambulation may be achieved via various types of bracing, depending on the level of injury and the lower extremity muscle strength. But with a higher injury, ambulation becomes more of a therapeutic exercise goal rather than a functional goal. Like we discussed before, sitting balance is often a major focus in therapies and can be hindered by the presence of spinal orthosis. All innervated musculature must be strengthened, including muscles with a normal grade five strength, because these muscles will be used to compensate for weakened or paralyzed muscles. Additionally, maintaining full range of motion is imperative. Things like shoulder range of motion for dressing. Of note, previously, patients with wrist extension, but no hand function had been recommended to allow some tightness in the finger flexors to develop for a tenodesis grasp during wrist extension. But the current recommendations are to maintain a supple hand and to even splint to maintain finger extension. Stretching of the hamstrings for 100 to 110 degrees of hip flexion is necessary for dressing and self-care. It is important to have excessively flexible hamstrings to prevent overstretching of the lower back and ankle range of motion must be maintained for proper placement of the foot on the wheelchair footrest. Make sure you know bed mobility and transfer techniques. Successful mobility focuses on maximizing biomechanics, using momentum, and understanding that ever-important head-hips relationship. The head-hips relationship means moving your head and upper trunk opposite to the direction you are moving and looking away from where you are moving in order to unweight the pelvis for transfers or mat mobility. Make sure you have a good understanding of wheeled mobility. 
Young children with spinal cord injury C6 or above need a power wheelchair for independent mobility, and a child as young as 18 to 24 months may be trained to use a power wheelchair, but will need adult supervision. An environmental control unit is a complex power chair needed for independent mobility when a joystick is not appropriate due to a high-level injury. The joystick is replaced with a head, tongue, or sip and puff control, and the power tilt must allow for ventilator placement. Power assist wheels are motorized wheels that can be added onto or are already a part of a manual wheelchair, and they allow the user to provide some propulsion to allow them to be functional. And most are applicable for C6 to T1 levels where upper extremity endurance might lack a little bit. If a manual wheelchair will be the primary means of independent mobility, configuration and weight are important. The focus will be on ultralight materials and a proper setup. Know your orthotics needed for ambulation. HKAFOs are for absent or limited active hip flexion. With these, the hip joint can be locked for a swing through gait pattern and unlocked to use active hip flexion for a reciprocal gait. In an RGO, which is a reciprocating gait orthosis, using a cable system that will allow for that passive reciprocating gait. To use this, a child must be adept at weight shifting and trunk extension. For KAFOs, you need to have a three out of five muscle strength in the quadriceps or stronger hip flexors. AFOs are used in injuries of L3 and below and some incomplete injuries. Patients will likely require some type of upper extremity assistive device, especially when using HKAFOs or KAFOs or RGOs. Younger children, five and younger, are more likely to pursue ambulation and perform at a higher level and ambulate for a longer number of years. Always remember that standing frames are important for physiological benefits of being upright. In terms of locomotor training, which is activity-based therapy that consists of step training via a body weight support system, usually a treadmill, the term activity-based therapy is used to describe an intervention that results in neuromuscular activation below the level of spinal cord lesion to promote recovery of motor function and demonstrating the neuroplasticity of the spinal cord. The goal is to stimulate those central pattern generators through repetitive movements. Functional electrical stimulation, specifically with cycling, has gained some popularity as an activity-based rehabilitation strategy to encourage neuroplasticity and health gains for people with spinal cord injury. And it is actually FDA approved for children four and older. Bilateral quads, hamstrings, and glutes are stimulated at the appropriate times during the revolution of the cycle. Exercise protocols commonly state 30 to 60 minutes, three to five times a week at a cadence of 40 to 50 revolutions per minute. There are also functional electrical stim walking options. The book goes into much more detail about exercise, fitness, and psychosocial activities that are useful, but I'm going to stop here because this episode is already really long, and I think we covered the important memorization facts. Make sure you're confident knowing those motor levels, classifying an injury, and understanding realistic goals for all of those various motor levels.
Definitely agree with what Sheila just said. I could definitely see both spinal cord injury and spina bifida being good candidates for a case study question where you have to determine the level, determine their ability level, and then determine an appropriate intervention for them. Next, we are moving on to myelodysplasia, otherwise known as spina bifida. Myelodysplasia is defined as defective development of any part of the spinal cord. It is classified into a para, A-P-E-R-A, which is open or visible, and occulta, which is hidden or not visible. There are various types of spina bifida. Spina bifida occulta usually causes no back problems. Usually there is a tuft of hair over the segment. Spina bifida with meningocele is when there is a CSF-filled sac over the spinal segment. Spina bifida with meningomyelocele is when there is a membranous sac that the spinal cord protrudes into. And spina bifida with myelochysis is when there is an open spinal cord. These deformations occur early on in development. The cause of these disorders are unknown. However, myelomeningocele, or MM according to the book, is often associated with genetic abnormalities. Teratogens can also cause MM. Such teratogens include excess maternal alcohol, ingestion or valporic acid or carbamenzapine, which is an anticonvulsant medication, or maternal pregestational insulin-dependent diabetes. Nutritional deficiencies can also cause MM, specifically folic acid. It is recommended that women take folic acid in an effort to reduce both the recurrence in families with and the occurrence of families without a member with MM. Diagnosis frequently occurs at 18 weeks gestation. C-sections compared to vaginal delivery have less risk of paralysis and minimal risk for CNS infection. The book goes into some of the prenatal testing for diagnosis of MM, so we recommend taking a look at this on your own time. Musculoskeletal impairments of individuals with spina bifida are extensive. Orthopedic deformities and joint contractures negatively affect positioning, body image, weight bearing, ADLs, energy expenditure, and mobility. Spinal and lower extremity contractures occur most frequently. The upper limbs can be involved as a result of spasticity or poor postural habits. Postural stability is essential to perform functional tasks and uncorrected postural deficits can result in joint contractures and deformities, stretch weakness, and musculoskeletal pain. Range of motion, muscle extensibility, and joint alignment should be monitored through the lifespan. Typical postural problems include forward head, rounded shoulders, kyphosis, scoliosis, excessive lordosis, anterior pelvic tilt, rotational deformities of the hip or tibia, flex hips and knees, and pronated feet. Some common postural deviations and contractures that are typical for individual lesions include Individuals with all high-level lesions, thoracic to L2, often have hip flexion, abduction, and external rotation contractures, 
knee flexion contractures, and ankle flexion contractures. The lumbar spine is typically lordotic. Individuals with mid to low lumbar lesions, L3 to L5, often have hip and knee flexion contractures and increased lumbar lordosis, genu and calcaneal valgus malalignment, and a pronated position of the foot when weight-bearing. They tend to walk with a crouched gait and bear weight primarily on their calcaneus. Individuals with sacral lesions often have mild hip and knee flexion, increased lumbar lordosis, and the ankle and foot can either be varus or valgus, combined with a pronated or supinated forefoot. They may walk with a mild crouch gait and may bear weight primarily on their calcaneus. Crouch standing is a typical postural deviation seen across all levels. Scoliosis, kyphosis, and lumbar deformities are also seen in spina bifida. Treatment for spinal conditions include bracing and spinal fusions. The ideal minimum age for a spinal fusion is 10 to 11 years in girls and 12 to 13 years in boys, according to Campbell. Other deformities include hip subluxation or dislocation, knee contractures, foot and ankle deformities, and torsional deformities. Some additional impairments include osteoporosis, motor paralysis, sensory deficits, and hydrocephalus. If you haven't read Ginny Palig's standard dosing article yet, this is your sign to read it. Motor level is defined as the lowest intact functional neuromuscular segment. Motor function should be classified individually for the right and left sides. The International Myelodysplasia Study Group criteria for assigning motor levels is detailed in the book. Our study group had a great chart from PCS Advantage that really helped us with the motor levels for spina bifida. We highly recommend you take a look at this. We are going to go over it briefly later in this episode. Be sure to also be on the lookout for shunt dysfunction for those who have hydrocephalus. Some signs of shunt dysfunction include headache, which is the most common, unusual irritability, excessive and unexplained crying, repeated vomiting, crossed eyes, apnea, swallowing difficulties, seizures, lethargy, and rapid increase in head circumference. Other impairments in spina bifida include cognitive dysfunction, language dysfunction, latex allergies, upper limb discoordination, visual perceptual deficits, cranial nerve palsies due to Arnold Chiari malformation, hydrocephalus, or brain dysplasia, spasticity, seizures, neurogenic bowel, neurogenic bladder, skin breakdown, and obesity. Something else to be aware of is tethered cord syndrome. This is when the spinal cord becomes attached to the spinal column, which stretches the spinal cord as the child grows. Symptoms include progressive decline in lower extremity function, gait and balance impairments, changes in bladder function, and progressive scoliosis. Treatment includes surgery. I feel like a favorite question on the practice exams was somehow you had to determine what was going on with the kid. 
So usually the answers were something like, is this a tethered cord? Is this a shunt malfunction? Something like that. So I feel like this is a very important concept is knowing what are the signs and symptoms when something is really going on. In infancy, gross motor and fine motor developmental milestones are usually delayed. Physiologic flexion of infants with MM typically does not spontaneously reduce because of decreased or absent spontaneous lower limb activity secondary to muscle weakness. Two primary orthopedic concerns during this period include to identify and manage dislocated hips and foot deformities. When assessing muscle tone, the Harris infant motor test and the movement assessment of infants can be used. It is important to distinguish between voluntary and reflexive movements. Muscle function is assessed both before and after surgical closure. Sideline is usually the position of choice for the newborn to assess muscle function to avoid injury to the exposed neural tissue. Muscle activity is best observed when the infant is alert, hungry, or crying. Spontaneous activity should be observed in supine, prone, or sideline positions. Sensory testing should be done with a pin or other sharp object until a noxious response is noted, beginning at the lowest level of sacral innervation. Interventions include range of motion, handling, facilitating developmental milestones, stretching, and soft tissue mobilization. In the toddler and preschool years, Self-exploration of the environment is important. By the end of the first year, range of motion should be within normal limit. Functional muscle testing should be conducted to determine strength and light touch and position sense can be tested. Fine and gross motor development should be measured using appropriate standardized tests. The functional activities assessment provides specific ADL performance data for MM. Others include the Battelle, the PD, and the Weefin. Children should be monitored for joint alignment, muscle imbalance, contractures, posture, and signs of progressive neurologic dysfunction. Interventions include play activities to promote strengthening and development of good posture. During the preschool years, the focus is on improving the independence efficiency, and effectiveness of ADLs and mobility. Skin inspections and pressure relief should be taught early on. Providing independent mobility for a young child is essential. If the child does not begin maneuvering their environment independently by age one, then alternative mobility should be considered. It is recommended to introduce a wheelchair as early as 18 months to be able to keep up with their peers, boost self-confidence, facilitate independence, and increase activity levels. Power wheelchair use has been found to be feasible with children as young as 24 months. Affected biped ambulation is feasible for toddlers and preschoolers with L4 and below motor function. For school-age children, independence with ADLs continues to be impaired. Joint alignment, strength, muscle imbalance, contractures, muscle extensibility, and posture should continue to be monitored. Physical therapy goals and strategies include 
improving flexibility of the low back extensors, hip flexors, hamstrings, and shoulder girdle. Stretching and strengthening exercises should be incorporated when able. Proper positioning while sleeping and sitting should continue. ADL performance should be addressed with the goal being to have the child perform ADLs as independently as possible to allow them to integrate into their school environment. They should have access to all normal social development, such as school field trips, community activities, and recreational activities. According to Campbell, swimming is a great recreational activity for this population. For adolescents and those transitioning into adulthood, community mobility must include mobility skills to travel long distances quickly and efficiently. Independent adult living also requires mobility and balance skills that permit completion of advanced ADL tasks, such as cooking, cleaning, doing laundry, and shopping. It is important to allow the individual as much independence as possible. Progressive neurologic loss can also occur and decubiti, fractures, and contractures become more prevalent. Progression of spinal deformities can also occur during a growth spurt. Bowel and bladder management independently affect social acceptance by peers and are very critical at this stage due to the impact on dating, sexuality, higher education, employment, and independent living. Interventions for children with spina bifida include strengthening, range of motion, mobility training, and gait training. The 10-meter walk test and the six-minute walk test are both standardized for use with children with spina bifida. Obtaining and training on different pieces of equipment, such as orthotics, walkers, wheelchairs, and other equipment to assist with ADLs at home and school is also very important for the physical therapist to be involved in. The SFA can be used as an outcome measure for school-aged children and the Peabody for those below the age of five. Now that we've gotten through all of that, let's move on to some key things to remember about each functional level of spina bifida. Like I said earlier, PCS Advantage is a great resource for you to go and review. We highly recommend this. Starting off with the thoracic level, expected muscle function includes the abdominals, paraspinals, and quadratus lumborum. Wheelchair is used for mobility and ambulation and standing can occur during therapy at school or at home. Equipment used includes a standing frame, wheelchair, and a dynamic stander that facilitates standing without crutches. Orthoses that may be used include trunk, hip, knee, ankle, foot orthoses, or a T-H-K-A-F-O. For functional levels at the high lumbar level, or L1 to L3, expected muscle function includes all listed in the previous functional level with the addition of hip flexion and adduction. Functional mobility is limited to household ambulation and a wheelchair is used as the main source of mobility. Equipment used includes a wheelchair, walker, and or forearm crutches. Orthoses use a reciprocal gait orthoses or RGO and a hip 
knee, ankle, foot orthoses, or HKAFO. For functional levels at the low lumbar spine, or L4 to L5, expected muscle function includes all listed in the previous functional levels, including hip abduction, knee flexion, ankle dorsiflexion, ankle inversion, and toe extension. Functional mobility includes household and some community ambulation with wheelchair use for long distances. Equipment use includes a wheelchair and forearm crutches. Orthoses include ankle foot orthoses or AFOs. For functional levels at the sacrum, S1 to S2, expected muscle function is all of those listed in the previous functional levels, including hip extension, ankle plantar flexion, ankle aversion, and toe flexion. Functional ability includes community ambulation. Equipment is not usually used with children at this level of impairment. Orthotic use includes a supramalleolar foot orthoses or an SMO and foot orthoses. Some highlights. Effective upright mobility is possible for children with myelomeningocele with L4 and below motor function. Mobility also helps with lower extremity contracture management and bone density health. A reverse walker works best when first learning how to walk because it promotes an upright posture and minimizes upper limb weight bearing. Children with lower lumbar lesions can be effective upright walkers. So a manual wheelchair and power wheelchair would likely not be needed early on. Children with lower lumbar lesions can be effective upright walkers. So a gait trainer would likely provide more support than needed for a child with a lesion level of L5 and would limit their ability to transition in or out of standing in a device for independence with mobility. Heel ulcers can be a common secondary impairment for all children with myelomeningocele due to decreased sensation and motor abilities. Kyphoscoliosis is a possible secondary impairment for children with thoracic lesion levels. Hip dislocation is a possible secondary impairment for children with lesion level L3 and above. Hip flexor contractures are possible secondary impairments for children with lesion level five and above. Wow, that was quite the episode. Be sure to go and review this information on your own in addition to listening to this podcast. We highly encourage you all to study this material thoroughly as it is extremely important. While the impairment levels and functional levels can be confusing for both spinal cord injury and spina bifida, Remember how much they intertwine and how similar they are with their functional goals. Don't get so wrapped up in them separately that you let your brain think that there is no way that they can be similar. Remember your impairment levels. Remember the functional ability and secondary impairments that correspond with these levels. And remember what interventions could be helpful to improve their independence and ADLs. Thank you all so much for listening to Pushing Pediatrics. You can follow us on Instagram at Pushing Pediatrics. We would love to hear from you. So send us questions, suggestions, things you want to hear more of, and things you'd maybe want to hear less of. We will talk to you guys next week. And remember, you totally got this.